0: G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1314. I'm Rob Jan, flying solo today. Our co-host Megan McHugh is on shore leave, back on Earth. Our show title today is 007.1G, and our podcast title is Sean Pottery, Pod 1. Well, As you will have heard, Scottish actor and producer Sir Thomas Sean Connery died recently, aged 90, in his home in Nassau in the Bahamas. He was born on the 25th of August in 1930 in Edinburgh and passed away on the 31st of October. He is survived by his wife, Moroccan-French artist Michelin Rochbrun, younger brother Neil and Sean's son from a controversial earlier marriage to Australian actress Diane Cliento and their son actor Jason Connery as well as two grandchildren. Now both Neil and Jason respectively were or are actors in their own right and it's amusing to note that two of Neil's films were both James Bond spy movie spoofs directly riffing off the fact that he was Sean's younger brother. And the first one was 1967's OK Connery, also known in the USA as Operation Kid Brother. It was directed by Alberto Di Martino, whose specialty was knocking out cheaper, but still reasonable versions of bigger budget screen successes. OK Connery also featured a number of other Bond franchise actors, including Bernard Lee, who played M in the Bond movies, and Lois Maxwell, who was Miss Moneypenny. And similarly, the 1984 Hong Kong action comedy film Aces Go Places No. 3 is also a satire, featuring a number of actors whose on-screen fictional spycraft was well known to audiences, including Neil Connery as Mr Bond and Peter Graves, who you may remember was the anchor agent, Mr Phelps, from the original Mission Impossible television series. Aces Go Places No. 3 was directed by Vietnamese-born Hong Kong-based filmmaker C. Hark, the man behind the 1990s decade-spanning Once Upon a Time in China movie, franchise and television series, as well as new blockbusters in the 21st century like the Detective D films and Flying Swords of Dragon Gate and also The Taking of Tiger Mountain from 2014. Oh, and Neil Connery also appeared in a low-budget 1969 British science fiction film, The Body Stealers, whose plot revolved around aliens kidnapping British paratroopers in mid-air. This is an unremembered film, surprisingly, whose... Remaining interest lies in its slight thematic resemblance to the Gerry Anderson television series UFO. Neil Connery's presence and its use of a repainted Dalek flying saucer from the 1961 Doctor Who movie, Dalek's Invasion of Earth, 2150 AD. And by the Whovian way, Sean Connery's son, Jason, has a more reputable Doctor Who connection, well, more or less, as... He appeared in the six-Doctor-era serial Vengeance on Varos opposite Colin Baker. Okay. There's a a fairly whimsical diversion from the vast film catalogue of Sean Connery, but it amused me and brought me back to the first category of actual Sean Connery movies that I want to talk about today, because the older Connery, of course, had a considerable back catalogue of science fiction, fantasy and historical films to his credit which are worth examining from a zero-G perspective. Today I think I'll tackle the fantasy ones first and hold on to the science fiction and historical ones for another time, because there's a lot in all of those three areas. Now Sean Connery had the kind of lifelong acting career that reminds me a little bit of Kurt Russell's, who's now, similarly playing father figures and aged heroes, although Russell had to break out of a child teen actor mould and so played the odd anti-hero or outright villain as a contrast to those younger roles that he played. A seen in John Carpenter's Escape from New York and LA and The Thing and later Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof and James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Number 2. Now... In the category of fantasy, Sean Connery's first movie, more or less, was Darby O'Gill and the Little People, back in 1959. Now, I'm willing to lay odds that this may have been the first time I saw Sean Connery on screen, uh, probably on a a Disney showcase program on the telly back in the 1960s. Now, it's a leprechaun movie, though absolutely nothing like the hideous Z-grade horror movie series of the same name. It was directed by British filmmaker Robert Stevenson, who was known for the 1937 adaptation of King Solomon's Minds. A couple of the Herbie Lovebug films, you know, the one about the sentient Volkswagen. And, of course, Mary Poppins in 1964. That's kind of interesting. King Solomon's Minds, of course, is based on the H. Ryder Haggard novel, which features the iconic adventurer Alan Quatermain, whom Connery would play years later, near the end of his movie career. Anywho, in this fairly beloved bit of stereotypical Blarney, Connery played an estate caretaker from Dublin named Michael McBride, who, alongside encounters with the magical wee folk, romance the daughter of the title character, Darby O'Gill. And really, this film belongs to the Irish actor Albert Sharp, who played Darby, uh, opposite the King of the Leprechauns, and Connery's really there to be nothing much more than the tall, dark and handsome sidebar male romantic lead, which is a a thankless role which he nevertheless worked quite hard to fill, and effectively too. Now, Janet Munro, who played Katie O'Gill, and Sean Connery recorded a duet, which was later issued as a tie-in single off the back of the film. So, here it is, a bit archival with authentic snap crackle and pop who i think are actually cereal box elves as opposed to leprechauns hi there i'm jen saska and i'm Sylvia saska and, and we're the twisted twins and you're listening to 0g on 3 triple rfm did you love it it good for you too heck yeah well there you go 007 could carry a tune well okay as well as a, a Walfa ppk now, in 1959, Connery also appeared in Tarzan's Greatest Adventure, in which he played a drunken thief so well that they wanted him to appear in the next Tarzan film, even though the Lord of the Jungle had killed him in a fight in this movie. Well, Connery had to say no, his doctor said no, or rather, Dr. No said no. No? No? And we'll leave the Bond movies, which of course are Sean Connery's major franchise in terms of his cinematic career, until another zero-g when we look at science fiction movies that the actors appeared in. And the Bond movies essentially are spy-fi, so we'll go with that at a later date. Until then, continuing a look at Sean Connery's fantasy movies, and in this category after Darby O'Gill and The Little People, is Macbeth, the Scottish play, Knock On Wood. It's the 1961 TV movie, and Sean Connery played the title role. It's a Canadian television film adaptation, and this was his first North American movie role, and the first time it actually had a, a significant Shakespearean role too. It was adapted by Paul Armand. So they broadcast this back in uh, 1961 in five parts and then re-edited it into a 90-minute single episode aired in 1962. I have actually seen the edited version and actually think Connery plays Macbeth quite well. At first, Amazed and enthusiastic, he runs into the witches along with his friend Banquo. They're in the very, very foggy studio, clearly designed to hide the walls. The three witches spin their dreadful prophecy of betrayal and murder and ascension to the throne. Well, you know how it goes. (laughs) Zoe Caldwell plays Lady Macbeth. That's Zoe Caldwell from Australia. I think the good thing about this particular adaptation, I mean, there's been so many different movie productions of Macbeth. Okay, this is a television movie. It's back in 61. It's not too ambitiously staged But nevertheless, they do have some interesting tricks in it. I mean, you know, Sean Connery himself is carrying a bloody great big sword. The armour that they wear, really, they're just kind of draped robes. He also has this uh, eventual big pointy crown that's actually like two feet tall. It's quite impressive. I guess it uh, symbolises how high he's risen in life. Not that he was particularly low to start with being a a thane, an important sort of captain in King Duncan's army before he betrayed him. All right, so it is a fairly stagey production and Connery is an energetic Macbeth. There's a sense of danger that emanates from him when he's standing still, as if he wants to leap into the customary action that he'd be more used to as a soldier rather than all of this plotting. And, you know, it's almost as if for him to be still is kind of a an affront. Anyway, this is a story which shows the terrible, terrible fate that befalls anyone who's entirely too ambitious in an unwarranted way. It's also quite creepy and effective in parts, especially when they're showing the murders of Macduff's wife and children, amongst others, carried out in broad daylight. So quite horrific because of that. You're seeing it quite stark and not hidden in shadow. Eventually it all comes down to a fight between Macbeth and Macduff. And it's a, a strangely stylized fight with a lot of hacking at the camera's point of view. And it doesn't actually look like the actor playing Macduff <laughs> is actually quite up to taking on Sean Connery's Macbeth. But he does, and the narrative is on his side, so he does win. And Connery throws in this interesting little move. I've often wondered about... Shakespeare having Macbeth die a fairly heroic death at the end there. He's quite defiant, if resigned, to dying because the prophecies turned against him. He knew it all along, but he hadn't really sussed the details out, didn't read the fine print. And having been disarmed by Macduff, Connery's Macbeth defiantly rises up to meet the beheading blade. One last act, reminding you of the fact that he actually was a very brave and effective captain under King Duncan, originally before things all went to hell. So that was Macbeth back in 1961, a television movie that Sean Connery starred in. And his son, Jason Connery, also starred in a production of Macbeth for the screen too. Just one of many echoes that his son encountered along the way in his own acting career. Now, back in 1965... Connery did the narration for a recording of Sergei Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf and Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. So they squeezed the recording session in between Bond movies, basically, because he had to get off to Greece to be 007. Reportedly, the royalties from this album were donated to a united kingdom charity for underprivileged children right so here we have Sergei prokofiev's peter and the wolf and benjamin Britten's the young person's guide to the orchestra from 1965 with sean connery reading the narration just to give you a, a sample of the actor's famous signature voice the marmalade forest, forest. between the make believe trees. G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie. I played an In elf from cottage, Lord of the Rings. Cottage, my dad played Elendil the King. I'll You're listening be, to Zero G I'll on 3 Triple R. I have one I'll thing to say be, my name is Figwit the I'll Elf. Be, you killed my father. I'll Prepare to die. The... Yeah, Peter and the Wolf, Sean Connery, and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. is Peter and the Wolf and Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, recorded way back in 1965. Now we're talking about the fantasy films of the late actor Sir Sean Connery today on Zero G. And we're up to Time Bandits in 1981. I want to talk about this one next, even if it is uh, an appropriate jump forwards in time. Terry Gilliam's 1981 fantasy film, Time Bandits, saw Connery play a cameo part as a minotaur slaying King Agamemnon. Uh, This film also had John Cleese playing Robin Hood and also Ian Holm playing Napoleon, amongst others. Now, Connery was Agamemnon and played him as a a more civilised ruler than I've seen in many other depictions, including Wolfgang Petersen's Troy, where he's a right bastard. Connery has become a kind of a stand-in father figure in his career at this time in 1981, and so he is for the time-travelling boy in Time Bandits, a boy called Kevin, And the movie centres around that boy. Uh, Connery mirrors that father figure stance later on in the film when he plays a modern-day fireman who rescues the boy. Gilliam thinks of Time Bandits as the first film in his trilogy of imagination, including Brazil in 1985 and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 1988. Kicking against chains of mundane life, the point of view of the main characters advances through free ages across these films from childhood to adult and through to senior. And similarly, Connery was in his early 50s, during Time Bandits and it's a a good example of him being parachuted into a movie in the persona of a wiser, older and bearded mentor who at this stage doesn't have to be killed off in the story to provide a revenge motivation for a younger hero. If you've not seen Time Bandits, it's a great little film that gives splendid reign to Terry Gilliam's trademark whimsy and surrealism. It also has God and the devil in it, although their names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty in this case. So it's really a religious fantasy film, as well as being a time travel adventure. Now, speaking of kings, it's something of a rite of passage for British actors to have a connection to adaptations of King Arthur or Robin Hood, and as well as Doctor Who. So let's have a look at Sean Connery and the matter of Britain as the body of Arthurian legends are styled. But first I'm going to play a track from the soundtrack of Moulin Rouge and it's called Nature Boy. And it was first laid down by Nat King Cole back in 1948. It was written in 1947 by Eden Arbez. And it's all partly autobiographical for Arbez and it has other meanings in context of Nat King Cole been used many times since There are lots of different theories and interpretations of what this song means, but I'm kind of taking it almost at face value and going with the fact that it sounds very much like the life of young King Arthur, (laughs) at least maybe in the way that T.H. White would have depicted him in the Once and Future King book, which later was adapted to become the musical Camelot. So let's hear Nature Boy from Moulin Rouge! And it's sung by David Bowie. So this is our weekly Bowie track. Hi, I'm Andrea Thompson and I play Talia Winters, resident commercial telepath on Babylon 5. You're listening to Zero G on 3 R, and I know what you're thinking. Now we're looking at Sean Connery's fantasy movies here today, particularly his Arthurian Cannon at the moment, or I suppose that should actually be Siege Engine. Now, in a 1960s television movie called Without the Grail, Connery played an official who was dispatched to find out why an unhinged Michael Horden, who made a career of this sort of part, was running a tea plantation as if it were his own feudal kingdom, and he was King Arthur. Now this was something like 30 years before Sean would find his own character obsessed with the Arthurian relics in Steven Spielberg and George Lucas's now classic third archaeology fantasy adventure 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now Sean Connery didn't start this franchise, but it's another franchise in which he's been in which was very very successful along with the Bond movies and some other ones that we'll talk about a bit later on in the piece. I think it's quite the best of the Indiana Jones movies and uh, just shy of 60 years of age, Sean Connery is a note-perfect dad gives one of his most iconic performances as Harrison Ford's on-screen father. Now, if you want a movie where the casting feels like it was destiny being happily fulfilled, now this is it the built-in joke of course that it's one older action hero playing another's father and it works a treat As. Ford and Connery riff off each other's characters in a bickering byplay that's leagues beyond the usual father-son conflict trope of other movies. It's another good example too, alongside 1986's The Name of the Rose, where the older Connery's automatic authority on screen atypically allows him to play a convincing scholar too, beyond his more straightforward fighting hero. Audiences were all rather glad that Professor Henry Jones Sr. didn't have to die in this film, though it was a near-run thing, if not for the magical intervention of the Holy Grail. Last Crusade cast members John Rhys-Davies, who played Sala, and Robert Edison, The Grail Knight, most notably also had connections to other Arthurian productions. In Robert Edison's case, it was the Legend of King Arthur television series back in 1979, where he played Merlin. And we'll talk more about John Rhys Davies a little bit later on in the show. But first, a track from John Williams' glorious score, from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This is called No Ticket slash Keeping Up with the Joneses. It pulls through a couple of sequences where Professors Jones Jr. and Sr. are travelling aboard a Nazi airship when they get rumbled and they have to escape in the airship's observation biplane, which is sort of slung beneath the Zeppelin, which is a thing back then a prototype helicarrier, if you will, and end up flying off and being attacked in midair. Now, This is actually something I've costumed. <laughs> I've just recalled twice. Um, I dressed up as uh, Professor Henry Jones Sr. and built a biplane and crewed the biplane with a stuffed toy <laughs> to represent Indiana Jones. The biplane was made of cardboard. I could actually get inside of it and negotiate hallways and doors by flipping the wings up as if they were built for a <laughs> an aircraft carrier's hangar deck. Oh, dear. Uh, I remember um, uh, my mate Ken Hassler built the, uh, the Messerschmitt plane to chase after me in that. What fun. Anyway, No Ticket Slash Keeping Up With The Joneses by John Williams from Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and The American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Ah, <laughs> by the grail, that's one of the great fantasy adventure films. John Williams'... is soundtrack from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. No ticket slash keeping up with the Joneses, as if you could. Now, talking about Sean Connery's fantasy movies here on Zero G today, we come to Sword of the Valiant, also known as The Legend of Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. This came out in 1984, and Connery is the sorceress Green Knight who comes to Fair Camelot to test the Knights of the Round Table, a test which most of them do actually fail, except for Miles O'Keefe playing Sir Gawain. It's a little bit inadequately cast, this film, and I almost wish that Connery had encountered this production earlier and played Sir Gawain instead of Miles O'Keefe doing it here. Trevor Howard plays a pretty doddery King Arthur and Peter Cushing appears in it as well as does John Rhys Davies. I told you I'd tell you about him again later, Uh, who of course teamed up with Connery in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Well, I think possibly one of the best things I can say about this film is that Connery does look impressively formidable in the Green Knight's shrubbery-themed fantasy armour in Sword of the Valiant. This one's actually quite hard to find now, but it is available on DVD. Get it at your peril. I think they also did a novelisation tie-in too that I've got kicking around someplace. Oh, and speaking of shrubbery... Connery does actually go around chewing a lot of scenery while he's playing The Green Knight. He's all roaring whimsy and cheeky chappy dialogue, and you know that he's probably the best thing that's come to Cabalot in years. And by 1995, Connery was aged 65, which was a handy age to finally play King Arthur himself in. Jerry ghost Zucker's first night opposite Richard Gere's Lancelot and Julia Ormond's Guinevere. And Ormond, incidentally, was 30 at the time, underlining an uncomfortable tendency that Hollywood had of casting romantic partners for Connery in his films that were decades younger than him. Was that just being ageist? I don't know. Michelle Pfeiffer in The Russia House, or most obviously... Uh, 30-year-old Catherine Zeta-Jones in Entrapment when Connery was 69, are other examples. I'm slightly fond of First Night, by the way, as a very curiously anachronistic Arthurian movie with its Star Trek The Next Generation-styled armour and Dark Ages punk obstacle course battle-testing machine, which really has to be seen in action to be believed. Anyway... Connery fills out the King Arthur role convincingly, and yes, this time he must die to give impetus to the younger hero along the way. Look, I don't think this film is incredibly distinguished as Arthurian films go, but it actually tries to be oddly realistic, which is to say, not too much magic. In fact, I don't think there's any magic at all in it, which critics would say is half the problem of first night. Well, we've got a track from that, and since we've had John Williams today, let's have the, the other great film composer from this particular era. Well, there were a few of them anyway, but Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams are certainly some of the most iconic ones. This is from First Night, and it's a track called Camelot. Shh! It's only a model. Dathdar, this is Gareth David Lloyd, Yanto Jones from Torchwood. You're listening to Zero G on 3 rfm Take a seat, I've just put the kettle on. Zounds. Well, at least that comes from the Zounds track of First Night. It's a track called Camelot, and it's by none other than the great Jerry Goldsmith, who scored a couple of Sean Connery films, come to think of it. Dear to my heart is 1996's Dragonheart since we're talking about Sean Connery science fiction and fantasy and historical movies in the fantasy mode at the moment. And this is one where Connery memorably lends his voice to the CGI animated Draco the Dragon. This film is notionally set just after the time of King Arthur and features a flight to the island of Avalon, where the knights of the Round Table and their ruler are buried. Uh, it also includes an, an appearance from the ghost of King Arthur, or at least Sir John Gielgud. It was a troubled production and many missteps in tone and detail are made. But the core concept of The Last Dragon and The Last Dragon Slayer, played by Dennis Quaid, teaming up to stage faked fights and then collect gold from grateful villagers is amusingly sly and worth seeing on the big screen. The talented cast deserved better, but it's still got a lot of heart. And what were, in the wake of Jurassic Park, some pretty damn impressive CGI that produced one of the still best realised dragons in the genre. In fact, Draco is my very favourite dragon in all of cinema. There's great chemistry between Connery's Dragon and Dennis Quaid's Sir Bowen. Um, Dragonheart went on to become a minor franchise of its own when... uh, they put together a sequel called Dragonheart Fire and Steel and then a new beginning and went on to the Sorcerer's Curse Battle for the Heartfire and even a prequel called Dragonheart Vengeance so yet another Sean Connery franchise essentially along with the Bond movies and the Indiana Jones films although of course he didn't start the Indiana Jones film cycle. Speaking of Arthurian connections, you know, I kind of wish Sean Connery had played Merlin at some stage in his career. Well, his son Jason Connery did. He was young Merlin in a 1998 television film, Merlin, The Quest Begins. Gareth Thomas from the iconic British dystopian space science fiction series, Blake Seven, was also in that, as well as Corey Haim from the genre-influential teen 1980s vampire movie The Lost Boys. Great film, that one. All right, then. Uh, now, Connery himself won his Spurs and was dubbed a knight in 2000. or wore his kilt from uh, his mother's um, Clan MacLean hunting tartan to the ceremony in Edinburgh, where QE2 knighted Connery for his services to the dramatic arts. Considering he grew up in poverty in Edinburgh, it's pretty damn impressive that he ended up becoming a knight himself in the same city. Well, all right then, let's play a track from The Magnificent Score to Dragonheart, composed and conducted by Randy Edelman. And this is To the Stars, and it depicts the Fate of Draco, the last dragon. What a beautiful soundtrack this is! Hi, this is Fraser Hines. You're listening to Zero G on Three Triple R FM. I played the companion to Patrick Troughton's Second Doctor, the Highlander Jamie McCrimmon, and there can only be one. That's McCrimmon. Craig and Tour, soaring high with Draco, the dragon, and Sir Bowen from the movie Dragonheart. The score by Randy Edelman, and the track was To the Stars. Well, Fraser Hines had the right of it from one Highlander to another, talking about the science fiction, fantasy and historical movies of Sean Connery. And in this case, we're talking about the fantasy movies, subcategory Arthurian, the matter of Britain. But we've moved on from that now, because we're straddling science fiction and fantasy. Melbourne-born director Russell McKay's Highlander in 1986... Now, in spite of the title, it's actually Christopher Lambert who plays the (laughs) title role. And Connery played a completely different character, in fact, an Egyptian, (laughs) which is to say Don Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, recently of Spain, but, as I said, hailing from the land of the pyramids thousands of years ago. He was an immortal warrior who mentors the also-immortal Highlander of the title, Connor MacLeod, in 16th century Scotland. Well, there can be only one, so Ramirez loses his head in traditional teacher-must-die-to-motivate-student trope to Clancy Brown's comic book Brutal Kurgan. Confusingly, Ramirez manages to turn up in the messy sequel Highlander 2, but there's a kind of magic in the air when the sophisticated peacock-feather-cloaked Ramirez and the kilted MacLeod are training with swords, and Connery conjures up one of the very few immortal characters on screen who seems to be relishing and really enjoying living, if not quite forever, but for a very, very long time. Highlander is beautifully shot, and also quite a bit groundbreaking too, as it brought video, which is to say music video style, camera moves and fast cuts to the cinema. Russell McKay, the director, had a background in that to begin with. Now, this is another film that Connery was in that went on to become a bit of a franchise, in fact, rather a large franchise. There's four theatrical Highlander movies in all, a made-for-TV film, two live-action television series, one which starred Adrian Paul as Connor McLeod's kinsman, Duncan McLeod, and the other one had uh, ooh, a spin-off. It was uh, starring a thief, played by Elizabeth Grayson, um, a character called Amanda, which was Highlander the Raven. That only went for one season, although the actual Highlander series went for six seasons back in the uh, the mid-90s. There's also um, at least an animated movie and also uh, a television series, lots of spin-off novels. You could buy the swords from Highlander. <laughs> so many different bits of marketing. Not you can be only one, That uh, you can buy all there are. Well, There's one track I really want to play today, and it's Who Wants to Live Forever from the group Queen, and this comes from their A Kind of Magic album, which is probably the closest thing we have to an actual soundtrack album for Russell McKay's Highlander movie. This is a very poignant song, so if you have tears, prepare to shed them now, or at least put them in the croft or... Maybe the Tor or some other <laughs> Scottish dwelling place. Uh, Sting, Duran Duran, and David Bowie were on the shortlist to do the soundtrack for Highlander. But Queen got the gig. Now, that's about it for Zero G today. Our retrospective look at Sean Connery's fantasy movies for today uh, in part two, which we will get to eventually. We'll wander through Connery's science fiction movies, including John Borman's Zardos, which contains much Arthurian imagery, like most of John Borman's films. We'll also look at Meteor, Outland, Medicine Man, The Avengers—no, not those Avengers, the British ones—and The Unfortunate League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and Connery's Eight. Bond-related spy-fi movies, and yes, I did get that count right, and you'll find out when we have a look at that one. Okay, Who Wants to Live Forever by Queen. Thanks very much to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, and best wishes to our co-host, Megan McHugh on shore leave this week, and Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour.